The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Dean Norton fell in love with the Mount Vernon Estate Gardens 53 years ago and never left. After receiving a degree in horticulture from Clemson University, he began his career as the estate's boxwood gardener. The historical gardens of the first president of the United States, George Washington, became his responsibility in 1980. His promotion to horticulturalists allowed him to apply the latest plant science and horticultural management techniques for historical gardens. Dean has devoted considerable time to researching 18th century gardens and garden practices. He has received awards for conservation from the DAR and the Garden Club of America, as well as the Garden Club of America's Elizabeth Craig Weaver Proctor National Medal. He is an honorary member of the Garden Club of Virginia and the Garden Club of Providence. He has been awarded an honorary doctorate from Washington College, serves on several historic property boards, and lectures nationally and internationally. This is episode 125, Cultivating History, Exploring George Washington's Mount Vernon Garden with Dean Norton, an encore presentation and remix of episode 64. Dean, why did General George Washington, the first president of the United States, garden? Well, he really gardened for necessity. The earliest gardens were called gardens of necessity for health and survival. Of course, the most important plant to be planted within a garden were vegetables, something that you were going to have at the dinner table to eat. Vegetables were huge to him. Even during the Revolutionary War, he wanted to make sure that his troops were getting as many vegetables as they could whenever possible. I would not actually call him a gardener per se, but for a year and a half, he became a designer totally redid his country seat from a very simplistic design to one following naturalistic design principles. Then that landscape were four very fine gardens that he oversaw. What story does the Mount Vernon Garden tell? It tells a story of a man that wanted his gardening world to be complete, I would say. He had a very small botanic garden, which he fondly called his little garden. When he was here on site, he was typically doing that work himself on his knees, planting seed and seedling saplings. He kept such good records in that little tiny garden that we were able to recreate that quite nicely. His earliest gardens were a fruit and nut garden and a kitchen garden. But when he changed his design, the kitchen garden remained as it is. The fruit and nut garden became a pleasure garden with vegetables in there as well, which is kind of an interesting combination. He had a vineyard for a while, but the grapes failed, and that became a fruit garden and nursery. The nursery was for plants that he could grow to plant on other areas of the estate and also to grow things just for collection of seed. What is today's mission for the garden? Today's mission for the garden is interpretation. We are trying to share with our visitors what life was like in the 18th century, why these gardens were important. Certainly after 1785, the gardens took on a new role 
which was for people to come when visiting George Washington to be impressed with what he had created here at Mount Vernon. The story of gardeners themselves, the gardeners that Washington hired through the Articles of Indenture, also the enslaved gardeners that worked with the professional gardener to cultivate, till, to harvest. It's a great story. It's one that we thoroughly enjoy telling. Gardening really hasn't changed much from the 18th century. So when we're out there digging in the earth, we think of those gardeners from the past. Today's visitors, how do they respond? I'll tell you what, when they come through the gates and they get to the Bowling Green Gate and see the house for the first time, that's exactly what they were expecting to see, this beautiful house that Washington lived in. But then the further they go into the landscape, they're really totally blown away by the amount of landscape and gardens that Washington had. They weren't expecting that at all. I think the gardens are well-received, and I think that the stories we tell throughout the estate in so many different areas are certainly appreciated by our visitors. The garden's been there for about two and a half centuries. You've told us that there's four gardens that make up the Mount Vernon Garden. Could we walk through each one of those and you tell us about them? Sure. Botanic Garden is a simple garden, very small. It was intended to plant things that Washington was not familiar with although sometimes other things that he knew quite well ended up in there as well. He received 500 Chinese seed, which he planted in one of the beds. None of them came up. So actually, we could show one of the beds with nothing but bare dirt, and we would be exactly correct. That was his playground, and he truly loved getting plants he wasn't familiar with and planting them in there, and he did most of the work in there himself. There was an area that he started a vineyard, hoping to get some grapes for making wine, but that failed. That four-acre area became a fruit garden and nursery. Washington kept such good records that the fruit trees are planted exactly as he describes in that particular enclosure. Part of it is a nursery as well, where he grew trees and shrubs, also some other grasses and things just for the collection of seed. The kitchen garden was the first garden laid out in 1760, and that has been cultivated as a kitchen garden since 1760. It's never changed in its purpose, which is the only garden like that on the estate. Both the kitchen garden and fruit and nut garden were an acre in size, so that's a significant garden. Nut garden changed from a garden of necessity to a pleasure garden, and that was meant to be the aha moment. When people were strolling around the Bowling Green, they could look through that gate, they saw a beautiful conservatory, The idea was to walk in there and just enjoy the beauty of the flowers, and those flowers were there for their enjoyment and not for their use. I think his gardening world was quite complete. You said the conservatory, would that be the greenhouse? That's correct. It had a greenhouse that he copied from a a lovely property called Mount Clare, just to the north of Baltimore. The owner was Margaret Carroll. He asked her permission for some information, and she was thrilled and gave him all that he needed, even his first plants for his collection, to get his greenhouse started. I started studying that greenhouse in pictures. When I think greenhouse, I think a glass top or a plastic top or something like that. And this was constructed quite different. Could you tell us about how it constructed and it was heated? The greenhouses in the 18th century typically just had glass panes on the south side, the southern exposure. Also, typically, they were triple-hung windows, so you could open top and bottom to allow for good air circulation. His was quite modern, very good. It had a vaulted ceiling, so hot air didn't get trapped up at the corners. It had a wood door on the west side of the structure to keep afternoon sun from coming in. It was too hot. A glass door on the east side to allow morning sun in. It had shutters 
that closed very tight. So in the wintertime, when you got whatever heat you could get from the solar energy, you could close those shutters to retain the heat overnight. It was heated by a stove room on the opposite side of the structure. The fire pit was quite low, and that hot air and smoke would go underneath the slate floor in the greenhouse and then rise up along the back wall and out the chimney. It was very efficient. It housed the semi-tropical plants and citrus trees in the winter, not for them to continue to fruit. So we had lemons and limes and all that, just to keep them alive in the wintertime. In all these gardens, he's combining beauty with necessity. How did he accomplish that? The one garden that really does that beautifully is the upper garden or pleasure garden. He wanted a pleasure garden. He wanted the aha moment when someone walked into there. It's a 10-foot wide path edged in boxwood with this greenhouse at the end. He was concerned, though, in that he didn't want to lose a lot of space to the growth of vegetables, which were still the most important plant that he grew on the property. 18th century horticulture said, look, George, you can do both. Plant your vegetables and then surround them with a border of flowers. The border could be three feet, five feet, whatever you so decide. It's the border that's actually the pleasure garden. So you're really not losing that much space to growing vegetables. How did Washington change his gardens to enhance Mount Vernon's natural beauty? He adopted the naturalistic style. There are four key elements of that. The curve line is nature's gift, management of surprises, random planting, and hidden barriers. Now, if you can do those four things, you're well on your way to a wonderful naturalistic design. The management of surprises, the curved line helps you with that. Around each bend, you can do something different. The book that he's learning all these techniques from was written by a gentleman named Batty Langley. He wrote the book in 1728 called New Principles of Gardening. Washington purchased it in 1759. Langley goes in, he says, once you've seen one quarter of your garden, you should not have seen it all. There's nothing more shocking and stiff than a regular garden. He said, every garden must have good shade. If you have to walk more than 20 paces in full sun, your walk is not worth it. Washington really took all these thoughts and comments to heart and made sure he put trees on either side of his serpentine avenues. And around each bit, he added shrubberies and wilderness areas and groves. It really was a complete landscape, and it was all just trying to stay within the qualifications or the requirements of a naturalistic garden. There are many historical events that took place away from Mount Vernon. For long periods of time, Washington was gone. How did he stay in touch with his garden and its growing? Much to his demise, much to our benefit, Washington, during the 45 years he lived here at Mount Vernon, he was away for 16 years only visiting his house a couple times during all that time. When he is away, he's communicating with the land manager with lengthy letters, three, four, five pages long, giving him instructions to do this, make sure that is done, have you planted this, I want to try to do this next. We have that exchange of letters. Gives us a tremendous advantage in being able to represent Mount Vernon as accurately as we do in today's world. Should be considered the current garden overseer, but there's been many that have come before you. Have you got any good overseer stories about your predecessors? Yeah, there's some. I'm number 37. Now, I don't know if that number is exactly correct, but I'm honored to be the current gardener, whatever number I am. They were all pretty competent in their practices. Washington called one clever because he was so good at grafting trees. Probably one of the cutest ones is when Washington's trying to hire a gardener. He's writing to his land manager saying that the gardener should not have any children, but if he does, only one, but certainly no more than two. 
And he just keeps going on and on, giving almost any option possible for the gardener. He was always looking for the Scottish gardener because they were some of the best. I'm thrilled to be following in the footsteps of so many great gardeners. I hope that I'm continuing their tradition of maintaining a beautiful Mount Vernon. Tell us about the people that worked in the gardens during Washington's time. He hired gardeners uh, under the Articles of Indenture, so they would come over, he would pay their way, and they would have to work that to pay Washington back. Some of them stayed for many years. There was a German gardener named John Christian Eller who was here for a number of years. They had a bit of a falling out, but apparently after Washington passed away, he actually returned because there is something in the notes about a German gardener saying that he used to work here. There is one from Holland, England, and then, of course, you had your Scottish gardener at the very end of his life, which Washington said that he was dedicated, sober, passionate about his work, and that, in short, he's the best hired servant I've ever had. And what makes it even better is that he says he has never been happier. I think that's really wonderful and and certainly rings true for me. For being here at Mount Vernon as long as I have, my life here as a gardener has been a very happy experience. What did the garden go through between Washington's death and until the time is bought by its current owners? It started to fall in disrepair rapidly. Visitors' accounts have been occurring since Washington lived here, people visiting and they write in their diaries or letters to friends, which is tremendously valuable to us, for that is our Polaroid to the past. Washington died in 1799, and visitors in 1801, 1802 are saying that it's deteriorating. It doesn't look anything like it did during Washington's time. So things just started to fall apart a little bit. You didn't have the money. You didn't have the the dedication, maybe, to do as well. Not to say that work wasn't being done and things weren't being cleaned up as best as possible, but definitely it was noticeable to visitors that it was in a bit of disarray. When the latest association purchased the property in 18. 58, things started to change, of course, quickly. And of course, Mount Vernon is in their hands today. It's a beautiful, beautiful site. Did they buy it from the family? They bought it from John Augustine Washington, the fourth Washington that owned the property before it was sold to the ladies. It cost them $200,000. And with that, they received 200 acres. Where others said you should take everything down but the mansion, because that's all that's important. They made the decision that they wanted to keep everything that was there during Washington's time, which was absolutely the right thing to do. We have all the outbuildings. It's an amazing opportunity for visitors to come to see an estate, a plantation, as it was during the time of the owner. Are there new discoveries being made through modern archaeology and research, or do you feel like you've reestablished everything there? No, there are new discoveries all the time. It's amazing. Archaeology, the science is becoming more and more exact all the time. I mean, with radar and LIDAR flyovers and just all these wonderful techniques that they now have, we're still finding letters that we didn't have before. Eventually, we may find the plan that Washington did for the Bowling Green. We have the plan's key that is in his hand, but we don't have the actual plan itself. You can never write the final chapter in this adventure that we're in here from Washington's time till now. We try to represent things as accurately as we can, but we may find a new letter or something that will totally alter our interpretation of what we were using or going on to create an area that we thought was accurate, but new information may change that, and we will go back and make those changes so that it's historically accurate. Where did Washington acquire his plants? Initially, the landscape was completed by nothing but trees and shrubs that he found in his wildernesses surrounding Mount Vernon. So it's certainly a native landscape. And he identified these plants in the wintertime by structure and bud and had them dug and brought back. 
he did say that he was looking for exotics. He, he loved plants of all sorts. Now, we don't know if an exotic to him was Mexico or South Carolina, but what we do know is he said he wanted plants outside of his geographic area. People sent him gifts of plants often. Also, he ordered from three of the principal nurseries of the time, John Bartram in Philadelphia, William Hamilton in New York, and Prince on Long Island. He ordered a lot of these plants in that he was experimenting with and putting within his landscape. I heard a story about a Franklin tree. Was that ever a part of the estate? The Franklinia, I think it was actually ordered from Philadelphia, and we've tried to grow them any number of times. We can't get them to survive. They're very finicky. They need to be in a spot they're really happy with, and so far we haven't found that spot on the estate, unfortunately. What's the significance of the bond plan? A gentleman named Samuel Vaughn visited Mount Vernon in 1784, I think it was, or 83. He was a landscape designer. He did a good bit of work up in the Philadelphia area, actually did some work around Independence Hall. He came and visited Mount Vernon and in his sketchbook drew the plan of the estate and then went back to Philadelphia, redrew a beautiful big plan that was very, very accurate. Washington said that you've drawn my estate accurately, except that you've enclosed the view with trees. And so the only problem that Washington states is when looking from the house down the Bowling Green, down a vista to the forest beyond, there were two willow mounds that were planted on the Bowling Green. They weren't meant to act as punctuation points. No planting would occur within that. So you had a wide open view to the West. For whatever reason, Vaughn decided to draw trees all in there. In Washington's eye, it was all correct except for that. So it's a beautiful plan. Archaeologists have used it, and all the buildings that he shows on that plan are where they find them when they dig in the soil. So he was recording the existence and not proposing new things. There's been some debate about that because Vaughn was a designer and some say, well, how do we know that this is something Washington had or was Vaughn drawing what he thought it should be? The written accounts seem to support what Vaughn was drawing was accurate. So it's all about interpretation. We could look at two passages somewhere and, and interpret it both totally differently. I think the Vaughn plan is amazing. I think it's as accurate as we can possibly get. You've mentioned the Bowling Green a couple of times. What grass did they use in the Bowling Green? Their grass was called goosegrass or speargrass. They also had rye. There's even bluegrass. It was a very coarse grass. Coarse grass was kind of important, actually, because they mowed it with the English thigh, and a very fine-bladed grass would be very difficult to cut with that implement, whereas the wider-bladed grass, they could cut quite nicely if they had a good sharp edge on their thigh, and the sickle, of course, would have been the weedier. The Bowling Green was meant for games and entertaining and would have been mowed on a regular basis, rake, rolled, and mowed right up until you may have a drought or something where the grass would stop growing, just like we have an experience today. What variety do you grow there now? Weeds. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. It looks great from a distance, but if you walk up on it, it's just clover and creeping Charlie. And if it's green, I'm fine. We don't want to use chemicals on the lawn. We have a lot of visitors, a lot of children running around, so it's just as natural as possible. We overseed and everything, but no, just don't look too closely. Well, that'd be more accurate to the period, I guess. You know, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see the grass back then. It was maintained in a way that it was intended for them to bowl. They had lots of games with the hoops and other things, so it was used a great deal as a green for entertaining. How do you cut it now? Oh, we have John Deere's that go 13 miles an hour. Oh. <laughs> so it's uh, pretty nice. You know, front deck mowers, it's great. 
Is that a real? No, my goodness, no. Years ago when I started, our only riding mower was a Toro reel. Now, nothing against Toro, okay? But that thing never worked. Poor man that was operating, he was a World War II vet, and he was always in the shop just standing here waiting for his mower to work. So no, it's not a reel. My dad had a real motor and he was always working on it too. And my dad's way to fix anything was with a screwdriver, not to actually tighten any screws. He would just beat on it. He was so upset. <laughs> You've got the serpentine pass. What materials did they use? It was a combination of gravel and clay, pea gravel, smaller grade gravel. And it was cobblestone up around the circle in front of the mansion. Washington said if he could find any alternative form of paving, he would certainly use it because gravel roads were constant maintenance of raking, rolling, adding new gravel to keep them from being muddy all the time. That's exactly what was used in the gardens as well. It was a gravel type path. Is that gravel mine from the Potomac? Washington talks about a gravel pit. It would seem as if they got a lot of it from the Potomac and they would have sifted it to get the right size stone that they wanted. I think there were a couple sources, but not real clear on it. What kind of staff does it take to maintain all this? In horticulture, my responsibility has to do with anything that deals with chlorophyll and manure. The gardeners, just like in the 18th century, they said a garden, an acre in size will require one full-time gardener. And so every principal garden we have is one full-time gardener working in that spot. Then we have a swing gardener that does all the smaller gardens and helps in the other gardens as well. We have a landscape gardener that takes care of all the non-exhibition areas. It's truly bare bones. We have some summertime help, college students, some high school College students love it. We give them as much opportunity to learn whatever they want, if they want to work in the greenhouse or use equipment. It's a really great program that we have for that. And then we have our livestock crew. We have five full-time livestock employees that maintain the genetic line of three very rare breeds. And those animals are here for interpretation as well. And one thing I just want to share is that Mount Vernon is a very special place. People come and they don't leave real quickly. Well, I've got almost 53 years our five livestock staff combined have 92 years of service here at Mount Vernon. It's just truly amazing. Wow. What type of livestock? We have a milking red Devon, beautiful reddish brown cow, Ossabaugh Island hogs, hog island sheep, and a Narragansett turkey. So, and all these are on exhibition at our Pioneer Farmer's site, which is a site that we created in the 1990s down near the river. That's a site where we interpret Washington the farmer. That's the livestock's playground. They get to take the animals down there, the oxen, the horses, and work the fields. So it's really very exciting. It helps bring the estate to life. Are you taking the manures and the straw and things like that and using it in compost, or how does that all work? 100%. That's all we use. We have huge piles that we are able to windrow with using a manure spreader. We always have these windrows, just these lines of the material that is whipped around by the manure spreader. The row is about maybe eight feet wide, 10 feet wide, and it's about six feet high. The oldest windrow is used as the fertilizer used in the gardens. And once that's gone, we windrow the next row over to aerate it again. And we just always have a source of compost that we can use in the gardens, and it just works out beautifully for us. How long does it typically age? It doesn't take long, really. We have a pile that's been there for so long that even stuff that has is not that old, maybe three months or so, when you mix it up with the other, it turns out very, very well. In the 18th century, Washington would take manure from the stables and just put them in a dung repository for a fortnight or two. You're only talking two or four weeks, and then they thought it was readily available for the garden. So it was much more rapid for them than it is for us. Are there any special approaches that you take to maintaining a historical garden? 
The approach is to maintain a historic garden really is visual. We want them to see a garden that is planted in the manner that would have been in the 18th century. We want them to see what an 18th century garden looked like. As far as our actual practices, it is really no different than what would have been going on in the 18th century. Our tools may be a little sturdier, a little nicer, rakes, shovels, soil knife. Everyone has one of those on their bill. You can do anything with those. As far as planting, we definitely concerned about height arrangement more than color coordination. We want to make sure the plants we plant are appropriate to the 18th century. Paths, the box, which should be trimmed, are very short. They were never intended to be a backdrop for perennials, just as a border. So that's the main thing. We want it to look right. The way we take care of it, that hasn't changed for 250 years. What are your biggest challenges with the garden? People. Compaction, really the damage that comes from, especially uh, kids. Uh, I used to share that the worst pest we can have is a child that's been on a bus for five hours from somewhere gets here and the chaperones go, 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 and they just start running. Back when we had big boxwood, they would just go and run and jump in and break a branch of a 150-year-old boxwood in 10 seconds, and that's hard to control with any kind of spray or whatever. But I developed to have a hard trap that was a bit larger. I found if I put an iPad or something in there, I could catch five or six at a time, (laughs) and I would let them off at the west gate. The chaperones would eventually find them, but at least we got them out of the garden. (laughs) Well, that's a unique way to do it. I think so, yeah. (laughs) You mentioned boxwoods again. How have you fended off boxwood blight? From the very beginning, I always felt that box blight could be managed. In the early stages of it, it was like as soon as you see it, you had to destroy the plant. And I was working closely with our extension agent, and we would go visit sites. I just felt that through pruning, proper spraying, and observation, if you catch it early, you could control it. I've proven that to be correct. I was at one historic site, a blight had consumed the plants completely. I didn't give up on it, uh, pruned it back later than I should have. New foliage grew, gave it a winter mulch to make sure that that foliage wouldn't get burned in a freeze. We started a really dedicated spray program and they're back to almost where we don't have to spray now. So it's manageable. You just have to stick with it. That's encouraging. Yeah. What have you recently learned about the garden? We just did have a garden conference here. We had some really special gardeners and landscape designers and architects here from England. We decided to have a charrette where we gathered this knowledge from these folks and staff. We just talked about future projects we may want to work on, such as there's a grove that needs to be replanted. The wilderness areas need to be redone. And there are other areas, too. What I learned from that is that there's so much information, even among staff, that we haven't communicated with each other. It's not purposeful. It's just that we're doing our own thing. And what I've learned is that when you have an operation, to make sure you you stay in touch with your cohorts and make sure that you're not just going on everything that you know. Ask them questions every so often because the more information you have, the better off you're going to be in whatever you're trying to accomplish. When was the first time you ever experienced the garden? On June 23rd, 1969, I was hired as a paper picker. I just went around picking up trash. And I used to admire the flower garden, but I really loved the kitchen garden. The gardener there was really nice. And he'd let me eat all the apples I wanted and strawberries. And he'd always charge me a quarter, but never took any money. That was really cool. That just meant so much to go in there. And and a lot of people would congregate there during the day just to get a snack. And even today, when I give tours and we have produce in the garden, One of the more fun things to do is to eat your way through the garden. Having young kids and stuff going through and picking something right off the plant, man, it just really changes them forever. 
they're hooked on possibly going home and starting a garden right away. So I would say that would be my first really memorable experience in the garden. What would your suggestion be for how people to experience the garden? My hope is that when they walk in the garden, they won't look at it in such a way that, oh my gosh, I would never be able to do anything like this. I don't have a gardener and all this stuff. To look at the garden in smaller segments and details that you can take that detail back with you, maybe an espalier tree or the way that we use trellising or supports for vegetables or vines or whatever, or even an edging that you may want to include in the garden. That's what I hope that they will see and they want to take back with them and implement in their garden because anybody can do that. Maybe they can't have a garden an acre in size. They can take all kinds of little ideas with them back home and, and incorporate it into their garden. What are some of those ideas? Maybe a gravel path. Maybe you haven't thought of that as a surface. The edging, not have a brick border, but plant some sort of little edging where you keep trim. People don't realize you can trim plants again and again and again as long as you keep them thinned. The trellising, the simple trellis that you have a fruit tree growing on it. Whenever we have a chance, if people can ask the gardener's question and we share with them how easy it is to do that. Cisterns, something that they may want in the garden to hold water. Coal frames, they may not have seen that before or thought to include in their garden. Surrounding the garden with putting brick in some way, like maybe a wall or a back wall. Those little things means a lot. And then, of course, just the planting arrangement of the cell. It's not at all formal. It's very random. To see all the different combinations where nothing is really coordinated, you know, they think, yeah, I can do this. And they can. Do you ever have that moment in the garden where you're just in awe of where you're standing? All the time. It does happen in the garden, especially the upper garden. But I'll tell you, when I am looking at the gardens and talking to the gardeners, and when I go from one garden to the other and I walk across that bowling green and look at that house, I just can't believe that I am here. The house is so beautiful. I often think that it really doesn't exist. It's just a backdrop. So every day I'm in awe of the beauty of this property, of the, the landscape that Washington created 250 odd years ago how honored I am to be here to maintain that for him. What is a visitor experience like? Mount Vernon years ago was kind of the kiss of death for children. There wasn't anything at all for them to really look at and get excited about. People touring Mount Vernon took about two hours. Today, people come for the day and sometimes even come the next day. There's so much to see and do. We have so many activities that people can view, such as the blacksmith, the baker using an oven to cook bread, people at the Pioneer Farmer site in costume, the gristmill and distillery, that, that they're just incredible to see a mill work and to see the distillery where whiskey was made. It's really amazing. And in the tours that we have, we have slave life tours, we have garden landscape tours. The museum and the orientation centers are so well done. People can come, spend whatever time they want, but they are going to go away having had an amazing experience at an 18th century site and learn much more than they ever would have thought about the life and times of everyone here at Mount Vernon. The Washingtons, the gardeners, the visitors, and the enslaved. It's an amazing experience. How has Mount Vernon touched you? Mount Vernon's my life. My wife worked here for eight years. That was a joy. I actually asked her to marry me in one of the historic garden houses. My four daughters all worked here. They think of it as their backyard. We've had so many wonderful experiences. Who cannot be thrilled walking through a garden and you hear someone say, hey, dad, that made a day many a time for me. It has shaped me to who I am as far as Washington's moral character and what I've witnessed, the people that I've met. I am a blessed individual. Mount Vernon is my life and I'm honored to be here. Dean, how may people connect with you? I connect with a whole lot of people. We have almost a million visitors a year. I don't meet all of them. I certainly see a lot on tours and, and just answering questions. 
They connect with me through LinkedIn, email, cell phone, text. The ones I love to connect with are young people. I love to show them the passion I have for what I do, and hopefully they'll catch that passion too and learn how wonderful gardening is. This has been Episode 125, Cultivating History, Exploring George Washington's Mount Vernon Garden with Dean Norton, an encore presentation and remix of Episode 64. Thank you, Dean. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.